The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus told his disciples a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice, so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Dear Lord, be good to me. The sea is so wide and my boat is so small. Amen. Amen. Jesus told his disciples a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. Today, we celebrate together the national observance of children's Sabbaths. What a wonderful day this is. Our inspiration today comes from one of the most inspired organizations I know, the Children's Defense Fund, led by one of the saints of our time, Marion Wright Edelman. The theme of this year's observance is one that has deep resonance for me, both as a pediatric neurologist and someone who spends many happy hours in boats. It echoes the Breton prayer I just offered, which serves as the motto and logo, the logos, of the Children's Defense Fund. My boat is so small, creating a safe harbor of hope and health care for all children. As a lay preacher, it is always a privilege to spend time together with another congregation in this splendid diocese, to deepen the bonds of affection that tie us together, to remind each other of why it is a good thing that we are a body, a communion, and not isolated remnants hunkered down and listening only to ourselves. For this theme we are discussing and remembering today is a huge and vast one in this poor, battered republic of ours, in this weary and sin-sick world we inhabit. And we could not abide with it. We could not live with it. We could not embrace it on our own. It is a topic so daunting, we need each other. We are asked to look face-to-face with one of the most profound failures we have as a people, one of our huge abdications of responsibility. We are asked to examine how, as a rich and powerful nation, a place smiled upon with resources in abundance, talent in huge measure, capabilities and opportunities that are the pride and joy of this nation, how do we allow nine million children to arise every morning without access to health care and fall asleep the same way that night? We are asked to examine how we allow another 15 million children to have spotty access to second-rate medical care and 30 million children to have no access whatsoever to dental care. When the American empire has crumbled and fallen, when the historians of some future civilization examine our records and our monuments, the evidence and debris we leave behind, I submit that one of their greatest puzzles will be this. How did a nation that paid such enormous lip service to children who held up childhood as an image of innocence and delight in its literature, its songs, 
and its political rhetoric, how did such a nation fail so thoroughly and so miserably to live into those promises in practical ways? How did such a nation claim to love children so completely and yet let so many die so miserably, be ill so desperately for lack of medical care? It will no doubt puzzle them how people of such apparent goodwill, capable of such huge generosity of spirit and treasure, allowed this to happen. They will wonder how such a people could be so short-sighted that they pawned their children, their future, for a mess of pottage. They will wonder why we spent more on bridges that went to nowhere in cars that despoiled our world than we did on making certain every child would be immunized against diseases that are the scourge of our time. They will wonder why we allowed the national expenditure on cosmetic surgery and liposuction to outstrip the cost of dental care for all children by a factor of more than two to one. They will wonder who on earth we thought we were. And some of them will come to the conclusion that such a people, despite all their greatness, were destined to collapse, to disappear, to become victim to the contradictions inherent in their way of life. As I said, I have a vested interest in this topic. I'm a pediatric neurologist, and as such, I spend most of my days with the most vulnerable of the vulnerable. If children in general are hard-pressed in this medical system of ours, then children with serious neurologic and developmental disorders are several rungs further down the ladder. I know of practices where my patients are all seen for their general medical care on separate afternoons and weekends, time set aside so they don't frighten the other clientele of the practice. All those wheelchairs and suction machines, the drooling and the seizures, the organic reality of the life of those with significant neurologic disorders can be distressing. Better to keep it hidden a bit from everyone else. Still, it is good that the children I see get any care at all, since a disproportionate number of those I cited without access to medical care or with second-rate care, such as chronic returning visits to emergency departments, are from the ranks of those with serious developmental disorders. One day a week, I serve in a community health center in the city of Boston. It is the last freestanding community health center in the city, all the others having been swallowed up by the municipal health authority or the large teaching hospitals that dominate the landscape of medical Boston. This health center alone is escaped to tell us what medicine of the people, by the people, and for the people might look like. A story from there might help illuminate what the human face of all these statistics looks like. One recent Friday afternoon, I was sitting in the office I used there with a huge stack of medical charts, the work of the afternoon piled up on the desk. These were the families who had called and said they were bringing their children in that day. When the pile had moved entirely from the left side of the desk to the right side of the desk, I would be done. Most of the charts were thick in proportion to the age and seriousness of the medical problems of the children described therein. Thin charts meant new patients. If the child associated with that chart is a newborn, this is to be expected. New life, few encounters with the medical world. If the chart associated with the child is old, if the child associated with the chart is older, it means they are new to our health center, bringing with them whatever problems they carried along. Given our patient population, this may mean they came from Puerto Rico or the Dominican Republic or any of another of half dozen nations in Central and South America. Whatever records we are lucky enough to have will be handwritten in Spanish. As the afternoon wore on, I picked up a thin chart, a new patient. The date of birth let me know that he was three years old. I went to the door and called his name into the waiting area. 
By federal regulations, we are now required to ask parents to identify the child in question as truly the child whose name I called. Patient misidentification is a serious cause of medical error. This is one more well-intended and clumsy federal regulation to attempt a good outcome. We all know where the road paved with good intentions leads. In any event, I've bent this rule over the years and try to inhabit the same space we all inhabit during a baptism. Name this child has a sweetness in that context that I try to maintain in my heart during this federally required naming. What do you call this child? I ask parents. In Spanish, it can sound nearly biblical. I called his name, and a woman bearing a startling resemblance to the late Mexican artist Frida Kahlo walked over, carrying a huge three-year-old boy in her arms. Here he is, she said quietly, and carried him into the office. There was nothing in his chart but a brief note from a doctor who had recently left the health center. Something wrong neurologically. Refer. A place to start. How can I help you? He doesn't walk, she said. He can't walk. I looked at this large boy, easily the size of a four-year-old, and this very small woman, and marveled at the daily physical strength it took to negotiate the world with him. Not walking by age three is sufficiently remarkable that I could not imagine a mother who so obviously cared for this child had not sought medical attention. Has he ever seen someone else for this? Oh, yes, a neurologist in New Jersey. What did they say? They were puzzled. They weren't sure. How did you happen to come here? I moved, she said, averting her eyes for the first time. Things weren't good at home. His father, he'd get upset that he couldn't walk, and when he was drunk, he'd hit him. I needed to get him out. My sister lives here. She said this was a good place for kids with medical problems. I think not walking by three must be bad. As the astonishing late afternoon October light caught the red and gold leaves of the trees in the small park across the street from the health center, the story unfolded. She lived in Patterson, the old haunt of William Carlos Williams, and was seen in the same hospital where that poet pediatrician had worked. The boy hadn't moved much in the womb. The nurse midwife in the public clinic kept trying to get her an appointment at the high-risk obstetric practice. It hadn't worked out, she said simply. We both knew that meant public assistance, get in line for an appointment eight months from now. When you are already in the fourth month, that is an empty offer. She delivered in the emergency department. There was no room for them in the inn. He was floppy at birth, but breathed and fed well enough so they were sent home on day two of life with a suggestion that they have this evaluated in the near future. I know from my daily experience that a child this floppy, born at Emerson Hospital, would be transferred immediately to one of our teaching hospitals for evaluation and assessment. This child was born in the wrong class and the wrong zip code for that to happen. They were seen by a pediatrician in the free clinic at the hospital. She had been alarmed at the baby's floppiness. She was kind of young, you know. I don't think she'd seen much of anything like this, the mother shrugged. Or maybe she wasn't a very good doctor. I think the good ones don't take jobs like that. Anyway, she didn't help very much. As the first year of life gave way to the second, her son was doing very little from a motor development standpoint. He cooed and babbled and talked, but didn't move much. He got big. His mother thought he wasn't moving much because of nutrition, so she fed him and fed him. He grew, but didn't move. On his second birthday, a new doctor appeared in the clinic. This one spoke Spanish. He had long hair and an earring. He didn't really look like a doctor, you know, but he seemed really smart and nice. I think he said he was a student doctor. Anyway, after spending a long time with us, he excused himself and said he had to make a phone call. He was gone for a while. When he came back, he said we had to go to another part of the hospital. 
that there was a special doctor there who wanted to see my son, that this doctor could help figure out what was going on. She then described the neurology visit and all of the tests that had happened after that. The neurologist, she was real nice. She kept seeing us and doing tests and talking to other doctors, she said. She wanted to send us to another doctor nearby, but he didn't take our Medicaid. I had a job, you know, but it didn't give me health insurance. She said we could go to the medical school hospital and seen by some doctors there who knew a lot about this kind of problem. But I told her that was hard without a car. It's like three bus rides just to get there. I had a girlfriend who went there once, and most people don't speak Spanish. It's hard. So time passed, and things got worse at home. She went to a social worker the neurologist arranged for her to see, and she got the addresses of shelters for battered women. She called one of them and asked about coming. I told them about my son, and they said they weren't able to take mothers with kids who had special needs. So one day, after an especially frightening night where she thought her husband was really going to hurt her son, she left while her husband was passed out on the couch. It didn't come to her in a dream. No angel told her to free, flee to the land of Egypt. Herod's men were not after her son, but she left all the same. And so they arrived in the middle of one Friday afternoon. I asked for the name of the neurologist in New Jersey. She pulled out a very worn card from her pocket. I asked if I could give the doctor a call and get some information, some of the exact details of all those tests. I said she would have to sign this form so that I could do that. I called the neurologist in Patterson. Her name was South Indian. Her accent told me she had immigrated to this country. I knew the bargain our government had made. A physician only gets into the country these days, these post-9-11 days, if there is a demonstrated need for their services, either by the unique talent they possess or the underserved location they agree to work in for a long period of time. Patterson certainly qualified for the latter. Homeland Security does not, deep, does not list deep compassion and dogged persistence as unique talents. They tend to apply that descriptor to things like Nobel Prize winning science or new surgical procedures. So the neurologist had come with a set of underappreciated but unique talents that were in short supply in Patterson. I introduced myself and started to tell the story of a patient. I assumed she was so overwhelmed in her practice she would need a small reminder. She graciously stopped me and proceeded to describe the entire history and evaluation in great detail and obviously from memory. No rustling of papers, no let me look that up, just the details over interwoven with a clear knowledge of the child and his situation. The local expert wouldn't see him, she sighed. He doesn't see Medicaid patients. In New Jersey, you can get away with that if you're careful and clever. I said it must be hard work to work in that sort of community. Oh, well, she said, the university hospital people are great. I consulted with them over there all the time by the phone. We just couldn't get the family there, and those folks don't come out here. Just their medical students for a little atmosphere. We have a lot of atmosphere, you see, in Patterson. I imagined us both sitting in our offices on a late autumn afternoon, our waiting rooms full, our schedules which required us to see many patients in the course of the day, now blasted to smithereens while we tried to figure out a way to help this boy. And I thought, this is American medicine in the new millennium. This boy has some disease for which there is probably no cure, but whose biology down to genomic expression has been studied in detail and published in learned journals that led to glittering academic prizes for those who discovered it. And this boy was born to a mother who could not receive the best care possible, care that was available within a 20-minute car ride if you owned a vehicle she could not afford and spoke a language she had not mastered and had, her, and had insurance her job cleaning a big box store did not offer. 
And so she delivered in a storied but decaying hospital in its emergency department with a curtain around her that was purchased undoubtedly during the Carter administration and washed so often its color is now impossible to discern instead of a birthing unit with soft light and warm blankets and soothing colors on the wall, or even a standard delivery room upstairs because there were too many poor babies being born and not enough rooms for them. And she went home from the emergency department to a walk-up apartment with no visiting nursing services because their caseload is too great to serve a questionable referral like a slightly floppy infant and a suggestion that he be seen in an outpatient clinic sometime soon. And she was seen in a clinic that cannot hire the best and brightest American-trained providers because it cannot pay them very much, and so makes do with what they can find in the odd medical student who floats through for an experience. And that same hospital clinic finds itself rich with specialists, exquisitely trained overseas, who would agree to work in places their American-trained counterparts won't for the same reasons that primary care doctors won't, a lack of funds. But these foreign-trained doctors will come as part of our bargain for their immigration. And primary care is not on the same radar screen for our immigration services as specialty care, so no influx of pediatricians and internists is available. And a dogged and compassionate specialist tries bargain after workaround after deal to get for her patient what he needs. And the social welfare system is so burdened that they have to make draconian decisions about who gets a place in a shelter and who doesn't. And mothers with children with special needs don't make it into the lifeboat. And so the children and their families make hard choices and go into exile in places that have laws and regulations that afford them some modicum of access to better health care. This is the human face of our national shame. We can listen to debates about access and insurance, about steps down the slippery slope to socialized medicine. We can listen to our president blather on about how those folks in the working poor don't need a federal handout, as he characterized the supplement to the state's comprehensive health insurance plan for children he just vetoed. They just need access to better jobs as a means to a better life. I think he likes to hold out the big box store company for whom this mother worked as an example of American entrepreneurship at its best. They hired her for minimum wage as a contractor to clean so she didn't qualify for benefits. I'm not seeing the access in that, I guess. Jesus is not interested in public policy. He utters not one word in the entirety of the Gospels about solutions at a societal or governmental level to any of the illnesses or difficulties he encounters. He utters many words at a personal level. We are responsible for one another, the whole great lot of us, no exceptions. In the service of baptism, which constitutes our marching orders as a community, we make a shocking set of promises. We say that we will do all in our power to support the child being baptized in their life in Christ. And the newly baptized child in front of us really stands in for every child. Every child, no exceptions. And providing for decent and available and compassionate and respectful health care is essential to a life, is a fundamental support for that life. And providing that calling for that, demanding that as insistently as the widow in our gospel today, that is within our power. For we are a people that are called to be prophetic. Others may dither about models and costs and systems and delivery and all sorts of economics and politics, and as the people of God, we may politely listen until they are done and then say our peace. Jesus had a particular affection for children, 
for all children. And he admonishes us to care for them, for their well-being and ours are intrinsically and inextricably interwoven. And he tells us never to lose heart, to pray constantly. And he reminds us that prayer takes many forms, including the widow's insistent demand for justice. So as a people, we have had a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. As a people who partake in the bread and the wine of the body of Christ every week. As a people who are called to a new life. As a people, we have a job here. We have a voice here. We have a responsibility here. We must endlessly, joyously, importunately, incessantly demand that every child is given the same chance we give our own beloved children. Because in baptism... All children are our beloved children. As a people, we cannot rest until we see this day. Pray always, do not live, do not lose heart, and do not give the judges of this world who do not fear God or respect people a moment's rest. Amen. Amen.